You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Swift transfer issues are under investigation in a dozen more banks, while Swift announces a five-point security strategy. Attacks on the private sector is seen as having national security implications. Other cyber threats to business, DDoS and ransomware, place availability of data and networks at risk. As leading companies report results, we take a quick look at the state of the cybersecurity sector, without, of course, offering investment advice. We talk with experts on artificial intelligence and encryption, and as far as nation-state attacks are concerned, again, signs point to Pyongyang. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary and week in review for Friday, May 27, 2016. The SWIFT funds transfer network remains in the news. It appears that the anticipated wave of attempts on other banks had spread beyond Bangladesh and Vietnam. Anonymous sources have told Bloomberg that up to 12 banks have opened investigations into attempts at fraudulent transfers. There so far seems to be no evidence of actual losses. The affected banks are said to be in unnamed Southeast Asian countries and also in the Philippines and New Zealand. FireEye, which is investigating the theft from the Bangladesh Bank, is reported to have been retained by some of the newly affected institutions. Symantec reports finding connections between malware found in Bangladesh and the Philippines with the Lazarus Cyber Crime Group. SWIFT maintains that none of its own systems have been compromised. Some observers see SWIFT-related attacks as an indication that criminals are turning their attention from banking customers to the banks themselves. But whether this represents a secular trend or merely the current opportunistic state of criminal play remains to be seen. The national security implications of attacks on corporations was under discussion this week at Georgetown Cybersecurity Law Institute. Companies are often the targets of nation-states. Iranian operators were indicted in the U.S. over attacks on financial institutions, and U.S. prosecutors have also charged officers of China's People's Liberation Army with hacking manufacturers to obtain intellectual property. Some reports have linked the swift attacks to a nation-state, most commonly North Korea, in view of the similarity of some of the malware found in Bangladesh to that used in other incidents attributed to the DPRK. StealthBits Senior Vice President Adam Laub commented on possible nation-state involvement by suggesting that defense against this sort of attack is, quote, to fortify, and by this he means going beyond perimeter defenses to protect, quote, data, privileged credentials, and the end users, end quote. Last Line's Craig Kensick also commented, quote, This is another demonstration of the need for international cooperation against cybercriminals in attacks like this. The financial community knows no boundaries, and funds can be transferred or stolen within seconds. Without cooperation, identifying the perpetrators can be next to impossible, end quote. He recommends looking into data loss prevention and anomaly detection. 
The SWIFT network continues to work on the security of its interactions with its partners. It has announced a five-point strategy for enhanced security. It includes improving information sharing among the global community, specifically among the approximately 11,000 users of the SWIFT network worldwide. Enhancing SWIFT-related tools for customers, these tools will be tailored to users' particular needs and circumstances. Enhancing guidelines and providing audit frameworks with particular attention to making compliance transparent to and enforced by counterparties, regulators, and SWIFT itself. Supporting increased payment pattern controls, including faster stop payment intervention. And enhancing support by third-party providers. This would include, quote, security software and hardware, consulting and training, implementation services, providers of fraud detection solutions, interface vendors, service bureaus, auditors, and others. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Joining me is Malek Ben-Salem. She's the R&D manager for security at Accenture Technology Labs, one of our academic and research partners. Malek, we hear a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Can you explain to us what do those terms mean and how do they differ from each other? Uh, so in a nutshell, basically, machine learning is one branch of AI or artificial intelligence. Machine learning is data-driven, is uh, the ability to have a machine be able to learn new knowledge by giving it uh, or exposing it to new data, new instances of uh, data that it can learn from, just like a human being. Uh, artificial uh, intelligence is much larger. It includes, obviously, in, uh, machine learning, um, but it also uh, covers things like uh, expert systems that can uh, reason and make deductions. It covers things like information retrieval, the ability to retrieve information related to specific concepts, such as search, for example. Um, it covers um, natural language processing. It covers robotics, you know, uh, automated vision and perception, uh, as well as the uh, automation of movement. 
uh, and ingestion of surrounding information. So artificial intelligence as a field uh, covers much more than just machine learning, which is really focused on um, the ability to learn through data. So is machine learning a subset of artificial intelligence? That is correct, yes. So explain to us what are some of the applications for machine learning when it comes to security? Sure. Um, so machine learning has been applied to a number of security topics or problems. Uh, for example, analytics at the network level, um, looking at network traffic, identifying or automatically detecting what are anomalies within the traffic uh, and perhaps uh, linking those anomalies to uh, security attacks. Uh, it has been used to profile user behavior how people interact with computer systems and using that knowledge or those profiles of how people behave as ways to authenticate users. Another way of applying it is the ability to automatically uh, classify data as sensitive or non-sensitive based on uh, instances of sensitive and non-sensitive data. So building an algorithm that can automatically predict how sensitive a piece of data is uh, based on previous instances of data that it has seen before. All right, interesting stuff. Malek Ben Salem, thanks so much for joining us. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. This week saw another executive taken down in the wake of a cyber incident as a fraudulent transfer with no relation to SWIFT prompted the board of Austrian aerospace firm FACC to remove the company's CEO. The incident here is being called a case of presidential impersonation, a kind of business email compromise in which a spoofed email purporting to be from a corporate officer prompts company personnel to transfer funds or give up sensitive data. Other business concerns this week involve the two long-standing threats to network and data availability, DDoS and ransomware. Domain name service provider NS1 was hit by a denial-of-service attacks that slowed DNS delivery in the Americas, Europe, and Asia. With respect to ransomware, Locky is back. A JavaScript exploitation campaign is distributing it to the unwary. ThreatTrack Security shared some advice for businesses on how to deal with the threat of ransomware. First, back up your data, either to external hard drives or to a solid cloud-based option. Second, get on a schedule. ThreatTrack recommends backing up daily. Third, educate yourself and your people about phishing. 
Fourth, practice safe computing by keeping your systems patched and up to date. And fifth, keep work and personal data separate. We might add to the notes on DDoS and ransomware two points made this week at Georgetown Cybersecurity Law Institute. Both of these threats make use of botnets. Researchers who made a solid contribution to botnet control would be doing the world a service. And every enterprise should have a well-conceived, well-drilled incident response plan in place. To the point made about the importance of patching, it's worth noting that an office bug Microsoft patched last year continues to yield opportunities for cyber espionage. CVE 2015-2545 is being exploited by Dante, which is active against the Indian government, Platinum, APT-16, Kachang, and other campaigns. Unpatched systems afford an uncontested attack surface. In industry news, Palo Alto's results disappointed investors last night, as did Splunk's, which in fairness to Splunk didn't represent a loss, merely a less-than-spectacular gain. But analysts as a group seem disposed again to view cyber as a story stock sector. See, for example, Sophos, whose shares saw a small gain even after reporting a loss. And FireEye's story appears to be looking good to investment advisors, too. And finally, since we've been talking about threats from nation-states, it's only right to close by observing that the official website of South Korea's Air Force was shut down for about two weeks. Access has now been restored. There's no attribution, but the world, in the style of the Magic 8-Ball, seems to say in unison, signs point to Pyongyang. One of the foundations of cybersecurity is, of course, encryption. Brent Waters is a professor of computer science at the University of Texas at Austin, who's recently been honored with an early career award from the Association of Computing Machinery for his contributions to encryption, specifically his work in what's known as functional encryption. I asked Brent to explain what led him and his research partners to their breakthroughs in functional encryption. It began actually, you can sort of trace when it first started to um, when I was a grad student at Princeton University. I I heard of something called um, identity-based encryption, which was uh, innovated by uh, Dan Bonet and uh, Matt Franklin had the first solution to it. What it was, was you could encrypt to someone only knowing their identity. Let's say your identity is like your email address. And um, I had, actually at the time, I had this idea that, well, what if instead of like an identity being an email address, um, what if it could be a, um, a fingerprint or some type of biometric um, that you could encrypt to? The tricky thing with biometrics is sometimes, you know, if you measure them a couple uh, different times, you might get um, a slightly different identity, like your, the scan of the face or your fingerprint might look a little different. So I wanted to come up with a form of identity-based encryption that would be tolerant to this. So we called it um, fuzzy identity-based encryption. I took this idea to who would become my co-advisor, Mitzahai, and we published it. This notion of fuzzy encryption led Waters and his team to another form of encryption called attribute-based encryption. We usually think of um, decryption as an all-or-nothing type of operation. Either you have the private key and you can get the um, message, or you don't have it and you don't learn anything. 
Uh, so what attribute-based encryption did was it was the first thing to sort of challenge this pre-existing way of um, thinking of encryption in that I could label my, da- my data with a set of attributes, let's say like a surveillance camera, and we could uh, label it with the a- attributes of, let's say, the GPS location and the time of day, and then later on someone might get a policy saying, well, you can look at all data um, that meets this criteria. His work with attribute-based encryption made Waters wonder what if you could keep your data encrypted, keep it secure, but still perform meaningful calculations or functions on the data. That question led him and his collaborators to functional encryption. So functional encryption is a new way of thinking of encryption. Uh, So in functional encryption, some, um, let's say someone will encrypt some data. Let's say if you go to an authority, you can get a private key, which will not so much decrypt the data and let you see it in the clear. Instead, you could learn a function of the data. Okay, so maybe I could go to the authority and say, you know, I know I'm not allowed to see all the student records, but um, I think I should have the ability to um, learn what the median GPA is for students that, let's say, um, are in a certain major or graduated by a certain date. So then if I apply my private key to it, it doesn't let me see the data in the clear. Instead, it lets me um, see whatever my function is on the data. Brent Waters is quick to point out that functional encryption is still in the early stages of development, and there's still work to be done. The current candidates um, for functional encryption um, actually have two limitations. These multilinear maps, um, there's both performance considerations, and they're not built on what we call... um, standard assumptions in cryptography. We, we always need to make some, uh, to, to prove something secure, we always prove it relative to some assumption, like my, my crypto system is secure as long as it's hard to factor large numbers. And, and what we like is we like the assumptions to be sort of minimal or ones that have been tested out for as long as possible. Like for example, the, the factoring assumption has been unused or at least thought of in crypto systems since 1978. Um, whereas these multilinear maps are very new and perhaps a little more dangerous. Uh, one goal of my research is to bring it from these multilinear map assumptions to uh, things we're more familiar and comfortable with. And, and this is a really exciting research challenge because I think this is what is needed to establish um, these new systems as being um, really secure. Waters warned that while it's understandable that some people confuse functional encryption with homomorphic encryption, there are important distinctions between the two. So let's say that, uh, suppose for example, I wanted you to filter my email for me. Let's say I have a bunch of encrypted email coming in and you're, let's say, like a proxy or a server in between me and my mobile phone. I have a certain function which detects spam and if it's, uh, if it's spam, I just want you to throw away and not even bother sending it to my phone. And then um, also I have a certain other criteria for marking an email as urgent. Let's say it comes from a set of urgent people or has certain keywords. And so pretty much I, I, I want you to uh, for normal email, just send it on to my phone. For urgent email, send it to my phone and also give me a text saying, hey, there's an urgent email, you might want to look at it. And for spam, just drop it. Now, suppose I wanted you to do that on my encrypted email, but without knowing anything other than these labels, right? I don't want you to see these labels. Um, so functional encryption is something where I could do this. I could give you a function which kind of decrypts the email, looks at it, but only lets you know the answer. Um, so that's what functional encryption could do. For homomorphic encryption, you can compute on encrypted data, but the person doing the computation never learns an answer. So if you get an encrypted data and you have homomorphic encryption, um, you can uh, do a bunch of computations on it, but the person, the third party doing the computation never learns anything. 
um, which can be a problem if, if I want you to I want you to know whether it's spam or not spam, but nothing else. Our congratulations to Brent Waters and his research partners and the University of Texas at Austin on the award and for the important work they're doing. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.